Oh, that song is an old song. If you look to the uh, credentials at the bottom of our bulletin, it's written by Isaac Watts in 1600s. Um, but I encourage you to meditate on the words of this song, and perhaps the melody may be a little more reflective, and it doesn't encourage us to sing with joy, but it should be sung with a lot of joy. It should be sung with hearts that are abounding in thankfulness to the Lord. Because the question this song asks is, Lord, when you have prepared a feast and have called all to come, why is it that so many make a wretched choice to refuse to come? And why was it that I and you have been drawn in by the love of Christ to respond to this feast? This morning we are going to look at another feast the feasts you don't want to be a part of. Book of Daniel, chapter 5. We're going to look at a party that you don't want to be a part of. It's in Daniel, chapter 5. I encourage you to open your Bibles there. If you're using uh, a Bible provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 774. 774. As you turn there, I want to give you a, a, a quick heads up. The title of the sermon this morning is The God Who Ruins a Party. The party you don't want to be a part of. Daniel chapter 5. Here's the word of the Lord for us. And for those of you who are visiting us, um, we like to read longer sections of Scripture. And we continue to read the entire chapter of this book of Daniel from verse 1 all the way to verse um, 31. Here's the word of the Lord for us. A beautiful story, a trembling story that speaks to us about the greatness and supremacy of God. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles 
were baffled. The queen, hearing the voice of the king and, the, and, and, and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read the, this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived like the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written. 
Menei, menei, tekel parsin. This is what these words mean. Menei, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighted on the scales and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Let's ask the Lord to give us his spirit, to give us the wisdom to understand what we're supposed to take from this passage, from this story in the book of Daniel. Would you bow with, bow with me and join me in a word of prayer? Let's go to the Lord. Father, we acknowledge and recognize that we need your wisdom to understand what it is that you want to speak to us today. What it is that you have spoken to, your, to the king of, of Babylon. What is it that you want to speak to our hearts this morning? So therefore, Lord, we ask of your Holy Spirit to be given to us, and we ask that the glory of Christ might be made evident in our midst this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 5. Children, this is one of those lessons you know, right? The hand on a wall. No matter what painting, no matter what picture, no matter what children's Bible book you open, you see a picture with a hand on a wall, what do you think of? Daniel. We know this picture. We know this story. And yet, the book of Daniel chapter 5, this particular story, continues to teach the same lesson that the book has been teaching so far in the first four chapters, namely, the supremacy of God. The supremacy of God is displayed throughout the book in each chapter in different ways. We see in chapter 1 that God shows his wisdom and power by giving it to Daniel, one of the exiles of Babylon. But in chapter 5, God shows his supremacy in a very interesting way, by breaking up a party, by intervening in a party and ruining it. Now, why would God ruin a party? Who likes party poopers? For some of us, it's hard to imagine that God would actually play the role of a party pooper. And yet, that's exactly what he does in chapter 5. But actually, a bit quite more than merely ruining a party. God brings a message of judgment, and God will execute that judgment that very night. And we will see in just a few moments why God would ever do that. But friends, as we approach this passage, as we approach this well-known story, I encourage you to consider what is it that we can learn about God, about ourselves, and about the ways of God with mankind from chapter 5 of the book of Daniel. But before we do that, let's remember the context. Chapter 1, remember how it started and how chapter 1 ended? It started with a phrase... And in the third year of such and such king, God gave the king, King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, God gave him in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God gave 
the kingdom of Judah to Babylon. And chapter 1 ends with the words, and Daniel remained there in Babylon until the first year of King Cyrus. And if you're here with us in that first chapter, this was a clear hint that even though Babylon conquered Judah, Babylon's end was going to come prior to the end of Daniel's life. That was a huge hint of hope to the people that was just exiled. But then in chapter 2, the supremacy of God is shown by the dream that God gives to King Nebuchadnezzar that Babylon's kingdom will pass and give, will, will give way to other kingdoms. And all these kingdoms will be a mere prelude to the kingdom of God, which he will establish forever. The supremacy of God. Babylon will pass. God will bring other kingdoms. And in the end, God will bring his unending kingdom. The supremacy of God. Chapter 3. God showed his supremacy by rescuing his ser servants from the fiery furnace, providing a huge lesson that there is no God who can rescue his servants in this way, from the king's hand, from the fiery furnace. In chapter 4, God showed his supremacy by driving off the king of Babylon, driving him, driving him off his throne, and making him not just homeless, but turning his mind to be a mind of animals so that he would actually live like animals and eat like animals until what time? Until the time when he comes to realize that heaven rules and that God is able to humble anyone who, who walks in pride. And Nebuchadnezzar got the lesson that nobody can oppose this God and stand opposed to him, at least not for long. And that's what chapter 4 was about. But Nebuchadnezzar's son, or most likely actually grandson, um, Nebuchadnezzar's successor, if you will, he doesn't get the lesson. So God intervenes again. But this time, he intervenes unlike what he does in chapter 4. In chapter 5, there is no more hope of repentance. In chapter 5, there is no more opportunities to turn around. Because in chapter 5, God intervenes in a party to ruin it. And he doesn't just ruin the party. He takes away the life of the king himself that very night. But as a matter of fact, dear friends, the story of Daniel 5 is not just about the destiny of Babylon's king. It's also the destiny of the Babylonian empire. Chapter 5 tells us about the night Babylon has fallen, never to rise again, ever. The story of Daniel 5 is significant not only in the book of Daniel. It's significant for the rest of the Bible because this is the last time we encounter Babylon ever. And if we'll hear again about it again, like we will hear in the book of Revelation, it will be only as a pattern of its doom. This is it. 
in the history of redemption, Daniel chapter 5 is huge. Because God chooses to put an end to the Babylonian empire, the very empire that, that took ex- Israel into exile, and the very empire that, that, proud, that was proud against God himself, God is able to bring this empire to an end. Let's look at how God brings this empire to an end. And the big, the big picture here is God brings an entire empire to, the en- to an end by ruining a party. By ruining a party. It's in the midst of entertainment. It's in the midst of, of a great time of celebration that God intervenes. Friends, take that as a cue for about the way God will bring the end of the world. When people will be engaged in all kinds of, of entertainment, of all kinds of fun activities, of all kinds of of things that will numb their senses to reality. Parties. God has a power to ruin them. And what's amazing about chapter 5 is that this is a pattern of how God will bring the kingdoms of the world to an end. So let's look at this party being ruined. We'll look at three things. What did God ruin? He ruined a party that defamed God. We'll look at how did God ruin the party, and then why did God ruin the party? What did God ruin? A party that defamed God. Chapter 5 begins by telling us of Belshazzar giving a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drinking wine with them. Now, some commentators give us an interesting background from some historical books. Um, They say that actually at this time, when, Be- when Belshazzar gave the party, the Medes and the Persians were already outside the walls of Babylon. They were just hoping to take it quickly. But what does a king do? He throws a party. Why? Well, there are a number of reasons why he would throw a party even though the enemy was outside the walls of his city. For one the Euphrates River was flowing through the city. There was an endless amount of water supply. And Babylon, the historians tell us, that Babylon as a city was so rich, had so much supplies, that the king of Babylon was not very worried about them being safe within the walls of the city. The walls of the city were so huge, and the kingdom had so secured its capital that the, the kingdom, the king of Babylon had no fear about the enemy that was outside the walls. He throws a party. And friends, that's what the entertainment industry does. It numbs you to the real dangers. It makes you feel like you can take life easy. Don't worry about it. Live for today. We'll worry about tomorrow. This is what Belshazzar is doing. But this party is, is, is more than just being overly confident in Babylon's strength. There was something else Belshazzar was overly confident in. He was overly confident in Babylon's gods. 
This party was not simply a venue for entertainment. It was also a venue for worship. Look at verse 4, what it says. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At this royal banquet, the king gathered to praise the gods of Babylon and to remind themselves of what Babylon's gods have enabled them to do. Belshazzar does something unique. He brings in the vessels of God's temple from Jerusalem. Why would he do that? The text is not explicitly saying that, but commentators suggest that it may be that the reason was to remind themselves of the power of Babylonians, the Babylonian gods over the gods of the other nations. Bring the trophies. Bring the spoil that was captured to have a vivid reminder of how powerful and strong Babylon is. If that was the motivation, Belshazzar was about to experience a great feast. Because in doing so, Belshazzar not only praises the gods of Babylon, but he actually opposes the God of Israel by treating with contempt the things of God. Somebody once said, the contempt for God's stuff is the same as contempt for God himself. The contempt for God's stuff is the same as contempt for God himself. And don't miss a point here. People's opposition to God rarely put people in direct confrontation to God. People don't say, I just want to stand against God. I just want to fight against God. Very few people will do that so crassly, will say that so directly. But most often, what people do is they oppose the things of God. They treat with contempt the things of God, and in so doing, indirectly, they oppose God. Here's an example. If you arrive at the office one um, morning, and you're being called into the conference room, and somebody else from the company walks in with a box of all your stuff in the box. What's the point? They're not just getting rid of your stuff. They're getting rid of you. You're going. Your stuff in a box is not about your stuff. It's about you. you you're out. In the same way, that's what Belshazzar is doing here. He's, he's not saying directly by words, I'm opposing the God of Israel, but by treating the things of God with contempt, he's actually opposing God. Friends, you can't just think about opposing God by, by, the, very, by the people who are just very verbal against God. Opposing or treating the things of God with contempt is really a sign that you're treating God himself with contempt. Belshazzar's contempt for God was manifested also in another way. Not only by bringing the vessels of God into this party and using them to praise the Babylonian gods, but look at what else Belshazzar did as a way to treat God with contempt. With contempt. He failed to honor God. Look at verse 23. But you, Daniel says, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Actually, I love the way the ESV translates this verse. The ESV says, 
but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. How amazing to hear that God's hand is so sovereign and so big that he holds in his hand not only our lives, but every breath that we have. And it's not only for the children of God, but even for pagan kings. How amazing is the hand of God that he's able to hold in his hands the very breath, the very next breath that you're breathing right now. How amazing. And it's this hand of God whom Belshazzar chose to ignore, whom Belshazzar chose to um, despise. It's this hand of God that shows up on the wall. Friend, don't think that this failure is just Belshazzar's failure to honor God and give him thanks. The Bible tells us this fa- that this failure is repeated time and again. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we read the following. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and, and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Why? Because verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave him thanks, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Friends, this is exactly what Belshazzar has done in chapter 5 of Daniel. Not only he despised and opposed God by using his vessels, but he despised God by failing to honor him and to give thanks to him and instead he honored the gods created by human hands. Friends, here's, here's a point for us. Here's what we can take from this lesson. You don't need to throw a party and use God's vessels to oppose God. The simple forgetfulness to honor God and give him thanks is a sign of belittling God, is a sign of having a small view of God, Our simple confidence in other things in life might be a way we worship other other gods with the very things that God has given us. With our talents, with our gifts, we use them, and instead of pointing back to God, we point back to the gods of this world. When you get a promotion at work, it's easy to pat yourself on the back and say, "I, I think I deserve that promotion put in 80 hours a week for the last two, three years. I have grown in my portfolio of skills and knowledge. That promotion was well-deserved. And there is no sense of, Lord, you are the one who needs to be glorified for this promotion that I got. And we don't do that intentionally. We don't intentionally despise God. We don't try to oppose God. After all, we're Baptists, right? And we've been there for 50 years. And yet, it's the subtle ways in which we despise and dishonor God by being forgetful to thank God and honor Him for everything God has given us. Friends, you don't have to be a pagan king and to have your name Belshazzar to be in the same diagnosis 
in the same virus, in the same disease as Belshazzar. This virus is with us still today. Belshazzar has thrown many parties prior to this one, but this party became famous. So famous it got included on the page of Scripture because it was the height of Belshazzar's pride and despise of Israel's God, but not for long. The party that defamed God gets interrupted. That's the point. By who? By the hand of God, which Belshazzar has ignored. Herodotus, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. He's an ancient historian. He has written about the way Babylon has fallen to the Persian Empire. And um, he says in his history book that uh, the Persians were able to deviate the Euphrates River that flowed through Babylon. They, they deviated it into a basin so that the Persians' armies would walk into Babylon through the riverbanks of the Euphrates River. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that. If that's true or not, we don't know. That's a legend. But here's the bottom line. Daniel is not interested to give us the smallest ounce, the smallest ounce of historical details of how it took place. You know why? Because he wants to make sure that he tells us that behind the military strategy, behind the military conflict between, between two empires, there was another conflict in that palace, in that city, that deserved to get more attention. It was a conflict between Belshazzar and God himself. And Daniel is interested to tell us that before the, Babel, before the, the Persians got into Babylon, the hand of God got there first. Through all the Babylon's defense mechanisms, through all the securities, the hand of God knows no security. The hand of God knows no defense mechanism. He can penetrate anywhere to interrupt any party, including Belshazzar's. And Daniel doesn't give us any of the historical background about this stuff because he wants to make sure he tells us that behind all these things, God was in control. And God was bringing this kingdom from the north, as was read at the beginning of our service. God had decreed that he will do this against the Babylonians. It's the hand of God that's working through this party. How did God ruin the party? Two characteristics I want to point out. Uh, first of all, <laughs> the hand on the wall. It's pretty clear. This feature is pretty unique. You know, God is pretty creative in the way he, he sort of takes over the kingdoms of the world. Uh, in, in, in the book of Exodus, he had quite some creative ways of taking his people out of Egypt. But this time, the, the whole idea of the, the hand on a wall is fairly unique. And yet, when we look at the history of redemption, the hand of God with the fingers of God appear a few more times. In Israel's history, when God chose to take Israel out of Egypt, after some of the plagues, the Egyptian uh, magicians, they encountered the plagues, and here's what they said in Exodus 8, this is the finger of God. Interesting. What was acting behind the plagues? The, the Egyptian magicians conclude 
this must be the finger of God. And Daniel's point is simply, and, and what God wants to so, show us is that the God of the Exodus is the God of the exile. The God who is able to do miraculous things for his people to bring them out of the slavery from Egypt is able to get them out of the slavery from Babylon. The God of the Exodus is the God of the exile. What a great reminder for the people of God. What a great encouragement for them. But also, if we move forward uh, into, into later redemption history, when Jesus shows up, at one point he talks about, about his kingdom coming through his own ministry and uh, expelling out the demons. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom... If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. The finger of God works in redemption history at key points to usher in, to bring in the sense that God is in control, even when things appear otherwise. Friend, you, when you think of, human, of the human body and the strongest muscles we have in the human body, we might think of our, our thighs, we might think of our backs, we might think of our biceps, we don't really think of the muscles in our fingers, do we? Do you? We don't. And yet when God wants to show us his strength and the mighty force of his kingdom, of who he is, all he has to flex are his fingers. That's it. That's the supremacy of God. And he is flexing his finger as he's writing the decree over Babylon against Babylon, and he's using another major empire of the world, the Persian Empire, to come and, co and take over Babylon. That's the power of the fingers of God. That's the supremacy of God. How amazing that Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.25 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. That's the first way God ruins this party, by showing up the hand and the fingers. But then there's a second way uh, God ruins this, this party, namely, is that God gives a message. And what's amazing about this message is that it's non-intelligible. And here's a little bit of a paradox. God, your revelation to these kings is clearly a gift from you. But if you're going to reveal yourself to them, why not make it plain? Why work through riddles? Why work through mysterious messages? This has been a pattern throughout the book of Daniel. Why is God doing that? Revelation is indeed a gift from God. But as we've seen and hinted earlier in the series, God's revelation is not only a, a one-time gift, it's a double gift. Because the only way we actually understand God's revelation is if we get His Spirit. We don't get God's revelation by our human wisdom. And that's what God is doing here. He wants to reveal Himself to the king of Babylon, but at the same time, He hides the meaning of that message because He wants to hide its meaning from the wisdom of Babylon. That's the way God works. That's the way often God reveals Himself, is that He reveals Himself as a great gift to us, but at the same time, he tells us 
that we're not able to interpret His revelation on our own human strength. That's why every sermon, when we, when we start a sermon, we pause and pray and ask God to give us His Holy Spirit because we don't depend on our own resources to understand His message. We don't. But God proves once again that Babylon's resources are not able to get God's revelation. The king brings in all the wise men, and they prove to be a bunch of losers again, just like in chapter 1. And I know that's a derogatory term, but that's exactly what God wants to do here. They can't get it. And the only one who can get it, and here's the irony of this, of this party, the only one, there's only one man in the entire empire who's able to get it, and he's a Jew. At the very party that the king despised and humiliated and insulted the God of Judah, at that party, the only man who's able to come in and bring the message is a cast-off Jew. That's why when, when the king brings Daniel in, he doesn't greet Daniel as his queen, as the queen greeted him or, or described him as a, the chief of the magicians. Daniel gets described and greeted by the king in this way. Are you Daniel? One of the exiles my father brought from Judah. You can't miss the picture here. This is a message of of contempt towards Daniel, towards the servants of the God whom Belshazzar just insulted. Daniel is the last person the king would ever consider, especially knowing that he's a captive of Judah, and especially at this party where the God of Judah was defamed. And yet, friends, the only help for Belshazzar in this situation was a cast-off Jew. Friends, don't miss the irony here. This reality is true for us also. Our only hope, our only hope is a Jew who was despised and rejected and eventually crucified. We have mocked him. And the message of the gospel is that even though we have ignored him in so many ways, even though we have rebelled him in so many ways, our only hope is a cast-off Jew. And just as it is written that the message of the cross is a scandal to the Jews and a foolishness to the Greeks, to us who believe in him, it is the message of, of God's power and wisdom for our salvation. If only we would turn to him and believe in him and call on him, we will be made right with God if we abandon our own sense of satisfaction, our own sense of being self-sufficient, our own self sense of having it all inside of us, and abandoning and realizing that we need something outside of us, we need God to come and intervene in our hearts and change our hearts so that we might be restored to this God. Friend, it's not in our wisdom, it's not in our strength that we can obtain God. It is by our surrender to Him that we can actually receive him because God wants to come into our hearts whenever we turn around for our, from our own lives and turn to him. Friend, this morning, if you don't know what this turn means, 
if you don't know what it means to really put all your trust and faith in this cast-off Jew, I would hope to talk to you at the end of the service. We've looked at two ways how God ruined this party, by sending his hand into the banquet hall, by writing a message that no one could interpret but God's servant Daniel. Just these two elements were enough to ruin the spirit of the party, but God made it worse. He executed the judgment that very night. There there was no more party after this night. Why did God choose to ruin this party? Let's look at this last emphasis in chapter 5. Once Daniel is brought in to explain the interpretation, if you look carefully, it's only four words, three meanings, three verses to interpret the passage. Verse 26 says, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Verse 27, you have been weighted on the scale and found wanting. Verse 28, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This was Daniel's interpretation of the message. It's pretty clear. It's pretty plain. What's amazing is that Daniel spends most of his time not interpreting the the, the message, but explaining why the message had to be given. That's a big deal here. Belshazzar must know why the message is so severe. So in one sense, the explanation Daniel gives is more important than the interpretation Daniel gives, even though the king never asked for the explanation. Do Do you get it? All the king asks for is give me the interpretation. And what he gets is the explanation. Belshazzar must know why it's so severe. And and Daniel starts off by a history lesson, a history lesson from King Nebuchadnezzar's life. I'm not going to repeat it because it's all in chapter 4 last week. But the point is that Belshazzar did not learn what his father, the king, learned. He failed to recognize God as sovereign. And what was his problem? His heart became arrogant. Friends, just a note, that arrogance is still with us today. That virus has not been healed from our human nature. You don't have to be a Nebuchadnezzar or a Belshazzar to suffer of this disease. Any of one of us can suffer from it, and any one of us can be caught back into its traps. Just a hint. Go back to chapter 4 and learn the lesson. Daniel brings in the story of, Bel- of, of Nebuchadnezzar. But then why? Look at verse 22. Here's what Daniel says, and this is a big explanation. But you, O king, you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Belshazzar knew the consequences of what it, what it happens when he failed to submit to God. What happens when you fail to be proudful in your own heart? He saw the consequences. He heard of them. The entire empire heard of the consequences. And yet, Belshazzar chooses not to comply. You know what this means? This is a reminder for all of us that simply knowing the truth does not guarantee the correct response to it. Simply knowing the truth does not guarantee the correct response to it. Knowing the data does not bring about the required change, not necessarily. Knowing the statistics does not make the change. Our society seems to think that if we could just educate people about the consequences, that will bring transformation. 
If youth would only know what drugs do to them, then. And our society wants to sell us the pill that if we could just educate ourselves about the consequences, then we will have the power inside of us to steer away from them. Daniel and Belshazzar here remind us of the lesson that even when we know the consequences, we don't have the power to turn on our own. Our human nature, our brokenness, our broken hearts will still choose to take those paths, those wrong paths. Why? Because we don't think much of God and we don't think much of his consequences. And because of our hearts, get overflown with a sense of pride and the fact that we are in control of things and we know what's better for ourselves. Friends, even when faced with the truth, apart from the Spirit of God working in our hearts, we do not have the power to receive the truth, to welcome it, and to respond to it properly. That's why what's amazing to me, when, I, when we look at the whole story of the exile and when God is starting to make preparations of bringing back his exiled people out of Babylon, one of the things that God promises to the prophet Ezekiel is that God will give the Israelites a new heart. It's not enough for God simply to destroy Babylon to get his people out of Babylon. His people themselves also need a new heart, a new nature, so that they might love God. Listen to Ezekiel 11, 19, and 20 as God foretells a time when he will bring them back. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on them on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Friends, we must be cautious even today. Hearing the word of God without the Spirit of God can fall on dead ears. That's why we must pray that the Spirit of God would bring life whenever the Word of God is proclaimed so that the Spirit of God will make the Word of God life-generating, life-transforming, and producing in us a life of obedience to the Word of God that comes from inside of us. Belshazzar's story tells us that even when the consequences are clear, our hearts may still turn away from God you know why? Because our hearts are corrupted by a deceptive pride. That's it. Our hearts are corrupted by a deceptive heart, by a deceptive pride. We think better of ourselves. We think better of what we should do. We belittle the truth of God. And when we have a small view of God, we have a small view of his consequences. I love what Ralph Davis says, when truth does not humble us or lead us to worship, we're simply Belshazzar clones. Friend, the story of Belshazzar goes on today. But what's amazing about Belshazzar's story as opposed to Nebuchadnezzar is that chapter 5 is not only the, 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 the situation where God intervenes and confronts, Daniel chapter 5 happens when it's too late to do anything, to turn back. I want to speak to our ministry as a church. 
our ministry as a church will oftentimes be to play the role of Daniel, not only to give the message and interpret the, the message, but to explain why it applies in people's hearts. We should not be afraid to speak it. But I also want to say to you, church, is that most of our ministry as a congregation will really be more like the ministry of Daniel in chapter 4, not in chapter 5. Because as long as somebody keeps breathing the breath of God, there's still hope of repentance. As long as somebody's listening to the words we communicate to them, there's still a command from God to repent and turn around. Daniel chapter 5 is just showing us a picture of where the train tracks stop when all the warning signs have been ignored. When we do church discipline, dear friends, we're not doing the work of Daniel 5. We're doing the work of Daniel 4. We're giving warnings, serious warnings. And until God takes away the last breath of that person's life, there's still a hope and there's still a prayer that hearts might be turned and repentance might be granted. So as a church, most of our ministry will be in Daniel 4. But we need to be aware of what's coming if Daniel 4 never produces fruit. The God who's being defamed by people's lives, directly or indirectly, will in the end ruin their party. There is no way around that. And he can ruin it by his mere finger. That's why we need to pray that not just through our words, but that the Spirit of God would accompany our words whenever we bring God's Word to people's lives so that this life of God through the Spirit of God might abound in repentance and turning around so that God's people might recognize the sovereign king. I pray that God makes us as a church the kind of Daniels, the kind of ministry that Daniel had to have courage and boldness and trust that God through his spirit will turn around hearts. He's in control. All we can do is declare that truth. But God is sovereign. Let's praise him for that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are the sovereign God who, in the end, you will not allow yourself, you will not let yourself be defamed. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our hearts to have boldness, have courage to speak your truth, to speak your words. And Lord, we desire to trust not, not merely just in the speaking of truth, but in the power of the Spirit to bring you life through that truth. Lord, we trust that you will bring your people into your church, into the feast that you have prepared for your people, for your kingdom. We pray that many would leave the feast of the world and come and be a part of the feast that you have prepared for us. Father, we pray these things in the name of Christ, for his glory and honor. Amen.
invite you to stand up with us as we do this last song.